Madison, April 9th, 1960. 10,000 packed the UW Fieldhouse for the NCAA Boxing Tournament. It all comes down to Wisconsin's Charlie Moore, defending champ at 165 pounds, battling Stu Bartell of San Jose State. The stylish Southpaw leads a fabled squad. Since its intercollegiate start in 1933, boxing has been by far the Badgers' best athletic program, with nine undefeated seasons and an NCAA record eight national championships under the recently retired coach John Walsh. Moore, voted Outstanding Fighter of 1959, is about the nicest boxer you'd ever meet. A devout Catholic from the south shore of Long Island, winner of the NCAA award for sportsmanship and conduct, Charlie probably has more friends than anyone in Madison. Moore wins the first two-minute round. Then, about halfway through the second, Bartell lands a terrific right cross, flush on Moore's left forehead. Moore gets up at the count of two, takes the standing nine count, is clear to continue. The boxers spar and clinch a bit. Then Moore's legs buckle, his hands hang limp. The ref stops the fight at 149 of the second round. Moore makes it back to the dressing room unaided, where he apologizes to Coach Vern Woodward and the team for losing his bout. He says his head hurts and lies down. Then the convulsions start. He's already in a coma with a tear in a major vein and a blood clot in his brain when Dr. Manukar Javid operates at University Hospital. The operation stops the bleeding and drains the clot, but Javid knows there's little hope and says so. Still, a score or more of Moore's teammates and friends maintain an around-the-clock vigil at his bedside. Influential fans of the program would claim boxing wasn't to blame because Moore had an aneurysm that could have burst at any time and just happened to do so during a bout. Whether they believed that or just said it, it wasn't true. But with boxing already on the ropes in Madison and around the country, they said it. And some still do. Charlie Moore, 22, is pronounced dead at 20 to 9 on Easter morning, April 17th. On Tuesday, the Capital Times reports that Moore suffered from depression, was questioning his life as a boxer, saw a psychiatrist a few times, even had electroshock treatment. Team and university officials never say whether they knew about that before the fatal bout. May 9, the UW faculty meets in Music Hall. Without even hearing from Woodward or considering the athletic board's formal request for referral, the faculty overwhelmingly adopts a resolution declaring that boxing, quote, is not an appropriate intercollegiate sport and should be discontinued at the UW. And so it was, with no recourse to the regents. Other schools soon follow, then the NCAA itself. There would never be another NCAA boxing tournament after the night that Charlie Moore fell at the UW Fieldhouse. And that's this week's Madison History Podcast. Madison, seven days in November, 1963. Wednesday the 20th, President John Kennedy starts his last full day in the White House, sending a Western Union telegram to Madison for UW President Fred Harvey Harrington to read at that afternoon's dedication 
of the Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Memorial Laboratories, saluting Laboratory Director Dr. Harry Weissman on his efforts to, quote, conquer the vast field of mental retardation and its attendant problems. The president also sends his youngest brother, Senator Edward Kennedy, and brother-in-law Sergeant Shriver, the Peace Corps director, to tour the lab, which was funded in part by a quarter-million-dollar grant from the Family Foundation, and to hold a dedicatory luncheon at the Memorial Union. It's personal to the president. His older sister, Rosemary, suffered a botched lobotomy when she was 23 and has spent her life institutionalized at the St. Coletta School for Exceptional Children about an hour east in Jefferson. Friday the 22nd. Humid. High in the 60s. Chance of rain. In downtown Dallas, two Madison men see the presidential motorcade go by. George Holmes, from the tire company, is in town on business. Army Lieutenant Bruce Kepke is on his way from officer training in Oklahoma, home to Nakoma for a month's leave. Not long after the motorcade passes, Kepke hears what he thinks are firecrackers. Early afternoon, music hall. Professor Gunnar Johansson's chamber music class. Choking back sobs, he turns to the Kreutzer Sonata. Campus religious centers hold special services. The Ratzkeller is crowded but quiet. A hushed murmur as people jam in to watch the coverage. But in the Capitol Rotunda, Owen Rearson, 24, wearing a swastika armband and giving the Nazi salute, is loudly celebrating the assassination as, quote, a miracle for the white race. Out on bail from his arrest for disrupting a memorial service to the four black girls killed in the Birmingham church bombing in September, Rearson tries to hand out racist and anti-Semitic literature before he's again arrested for disorderly conduct. By evening, it's a hard rain. Monday, November 25th. Cloudy and damp, high 44 for the day of the president's funeral. Everything's closed. Everybody's either in church or watching TV. 8 a.m. 800 pack the pews and aisles of St. Raphael's Cathedral for a pontifical requiem low mass for the first Catholic president. 10 o'clock, the member bars of the Dane County Tavern League shut down for three hours. The Lorraine Hotel puts a TV in the lobby. A sound system on the Capitol Square blares patriotic songs. Even the bad guys take a break. In the five hours for funeral and burial, only six police calls. Fifty is the norm. After the burial, the state's official memorial service. A silent crowd of 10,000 ascends Bascom Hill to mourn one martyr in the shadow of another. Carillon bells ring somber and slow. Muffled drums herald the ROTC units. The university choir sings hymns. The marching band plays the national anthem. Harrington and other dignitaries make remarks. Then the benediction, taps, and drums beating retreat. The crowd quietly melts away, just in time for the 5 p.m. reopening of the four downtown movie theaters. 8 o'clock. 1,500 overflow the First Congregational Church for a multi-denominational service. Something is wrong in our land, the Reverend Alfred Swan declares. We rely too much on violence. Too many weapons are flashed before the eyes of the young. Protestant and Jewish clergy read scripture and lead prayers, and many in the crowd cry as they sing America the Beautiful. 
Tuesday, November 26th. Dane County Judge Bensley orders Rearson to the State Hospital at Wapan for a mental exam. For you to derive pleasure and satisfaction from such a wanton act of malicious violence, Bensley says, is evidence to this court that you may be deranged. Rearson says he's entitled to his political beliefs and that the rotunda crowd should be charged for threatening him. Rearson's attorney quits representing him because, quote, he is now personally repulsive to me. Then Wisconsin officials discover Rearson is on parole from a second-degree robbery conviction in California. February 18, 1964, Wisconsin extradites Rearson, and he serves out his sentence at San Quentin. Rearson dies in Washington, D.C. in 1986 at age 46, the same age President Kennedy was when he died. And that's this week's Madison History Podcast. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, the most interesting or important story the first week of November. 1960, Vice President Richard Nixon easily beat Senator John Kennedy in a mock presidential election on the UW campus, 3,900 votes to 3,000. Close to 10,000 greet Nixon at an early morning rally at Truex Airfield the day before the real election. Nixon carries Wisconsin, but Madison and Dane County go all the way with JFK. 1961, university faculty vote to ban the Phi Delta Theta fraternity because of its national policy against admitting Jews or non-whites as members. It's the first fraternity suspended under a policy adopted in 1952 banning discriminatory practices. Phi Delta Theta must end all activity by next September unless it can somehow establish compliance. 1962. Problems with the relocation of families who lost their homes in the Triangle to urban renewal prompt city officials to start talking about maybe considering building some public housing. The problems became public through a whistleblower report by Florence Zmadzinski, the Redevelopment Authority's own relocation director. Exactly one year later, a broad survey of former Triangle residents, conducted by the Redevelopment Authority, shows support for the project of more than two to one. Respondents say they are paying more for their housing, but that the housing is in better condition. 1964. The State Public Service Commission approves the city's dredging plans to build the Monona Causeway. The road, which Mayor Henry Reynolds has been trying to build for three and a half years, is now projected to open in 1966. It would, in fact, not open until November 1967. 1965, Neighborhood House, Madison's most important community center for close to 50 years, gets a new home at 29 South Mill Street. Thirteen months after its old building on West Washington was torn down for the Triangle Urban Renewal Project. 1966, this week marks the 50th anniversary of the Johnson Street Expressway, the new and expanded one-way road starting just west of Randall Street, the first phase of the University Avenue expansion project, which should be done by 1969. 1967 and 68, two years in a row, the big news this week was about protest and resistance to the napalm-making Dow Chemical Company. November 7, 1967, 
Federal Judge James Doyle bars the university from imposing any discipline arising out of the disruptive Commerce Building sit-in on October 18th until he and two other judges can decide whether the rules the students allegedly broke are constitutional. November 5, 1968, more than 2,000 anti-Dow protesters marched to the Capitol and back to protest a new set of job interviews. At a mass meeting after the march, leaders of the Students for a Democratic Society call on the group to occupy a university building. Alderman and grad student Paul Soglin supports the idea. I feel a strong sense of urgency, he tells the crowd. I think we have the momentum and the internal unity to take that building. But more cautious heads prevail, and the group votes overwhelmingly against occupation and for a non-obstructive protest on the 7th, which it pretty much is. 1969. Mayor Bill Dyke ends the decade by proposing an austerity budget that keeps the 53 mil tax rate, creates a new $9 wheel tax, doubles the hotel room tax, imposes deep cuts in city services, and lays off 70 employees, including 24 firefighters and all lifeguards. Other cuts. No sanding or salting of residential streets, closing the fire station by Camp Randall, and providing that winter sanding and snow plowing could only be done during the normal work week Monday through Friday, 8 to 5. The council expresses skepticism about Mother Nature being so obliging. And two front-page deaths this week. Carson Gully, supervising chef for the UW residence halls from 1927 to 1954 and the creator of its famed Fudge Bottom Pie, dies November 2, 1962, at age 65. In September 1965, the dining room for the Lakeshore dorms would be renamed Carson Gully Commons, making him the first person of color and the first civil service employee to have a university building named in his honor. And this week in 1965, photojournalist Dickie Chappell, 47, the Milwaukee native who covered wars from Iwo Jima to Da Nang, became the first female American war correspondent to be killed in action in Vietnam. A strong supporter of the American war effort, she's killed by a booby-trapped landmine while covering a large marine operation on November 4th. Chappelle, whose brother is UW geology professor Robert Meyer, spoke in Madison this past spring at the Matrix Banquet for Female Journalists. She was in Vietnam on assignment for National Observer, after which she planned to retire. And that's this week's Madison History Podcast. For WORT News, I'm Stu Levitan.